I want you to go ahead and turn to uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to uh, be moving around into the Bible today. I think this is uh, uh, one of these sermons that uh, has got so much information in it that uh, uh, we're going to be turning and reading a lot of different places, so you'll want to be ready to limber up your fingers and get ready to go. Remember last week we saw how that the Gentiles <coughs> received the message of the gospel. And uh, today we're going to come to the end of chapter 10. We're going to finish it up and we're going to move into uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, without a doubt, is the greatest chapter in the New Testament that deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. You'll remember that when we started the book of Romans, I told you how vitally important the book of Romans is. We've taken our time with Romans, and uh, we basically have come through it one section at a time. Uh, I think that it's absolutely vital that, uh, that you learn this great book. I, I told you when we started how that even the placement of the book is, is incredibly important. We find when we open up what is commonly called the New Testament in your Bible, four historical books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John basically... For those of you that know your Bible, are still in the Old Testament. We know that the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the New Testament doesn't go into effect till the death of the testator. That basically would put everything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up to the death of Christ in an Old Testament scenario. We certainly know that, that God is dealing with the nation of Israel in those four books. They're told in Matthew chapter 10 when God sends or Christ sends the twelve apostles out. He clearly tells them that they're not to go uh, to the way of the Gentiles. They're not even supposed to go to the Sumerians, which are half Jew and half Gentiles. But he tells them very clearly that they're to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so then we begin to see after Christ's death on the cross, we begin to see after His resurrection, we become to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is, a, is another historical book. The book of Acts, as we've talked about uh, many, many times, is a book that really is a bridge. It brings you from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John into the church age, or more appropriately, the book of Romans. And we find in the book of Acts the events taking place where God finishes up dealing with the nation of Israel by Acts chapter 7, and then we move into uh, the Gentile church. We find it, uh, you know, the transition I've showed you very, many, many times, and it's the way to really understand the book of Acts. Uh, no longer, no, no sooner is, is God finished uh, in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen than in chapter 9 the Apostle Paul gets saved and we see the gospel going to the Gentiles. And, in the, and in, from that point on we find the establishment of the Gentile churches. Now it's very important that you understand why the book of Romans is the next book. Because the next book in the order of the books in your New Testament lays out for you everything that you and I need to know about what God is doing in the church age. You've heard me say it many, many times. The job of every Christian, male and female, once you get saved, is to start a process in your life by which you look at everything in life, cease looking at it from your own perspective, and begin to see it from God's perspective. And of course, uh, understanding the church, its function, its mission, and all that God has for it is vitally important. And that's what the book of Romans does. I told you that the book of Romans breaks down into basically four sections. Remember? I told you that there's a historical section. I told you that there's a doctrinal section. And I told you about that there's a, uh, a prophetic section. And then there's a practical section. 
We talked about how that in chapter 1, he gives us a mindset of how the Gentiles think. In chapter 2 of Romans, he then contrasts the way the Gentiles think with the way that Jews think. When he comes to chapter uh, three and uh, 3, he shows how that the Gentiles who follow their conscience and the Jews who follow the law, he shows us very clearly that uh, neither one of those are going to get God's righteousness anymore by following that, that procedure. And then he opens up chapter 4 and 5, and he shows us in those two great chapters how that now, if you want to get God's righteousness, the conscience that the Gentiles follow is no good anymore, and the law that the Jew followed is no good anymore. Now that Christ has come, if you want to get God's righteousness, whether you're Jew or a Gentile, you've got to get it through the death of Jesus Christ, God's Son on Calvary's cross, and through His shed blood. And then once we establish that fact in 4 or 5, He moves into the great doctrinal chapters. Chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. We went through those in great detail. And in those great detail, we saw how that each one of those chapters, 6, 7, and 8, deals with a specific issue that we need to understand in relationship to, to, to where we're at. Every heresy on this planet today and every source of bad teaching and everything that people are confused on about the salvation that God has given to the church will come down in the final analysis of not understanding Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. So they're vital. Then we moved into the next section, was chapter 9, 10, and 11. And I told you in those three chapters that God now wants to show you and me, the church, what He's doing with the nation of Israel. I don't know of a more important doctrine for where we're at in the world today, and you're going to see this by the time we're done this morning. I don't know of, of, a, of a more critical time that you and I live in to understand what is going on in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 9, we saw that God showed us who Israel was. We saw that God laid out the nation of Israel, why, what His plan was for them. We see also what God did for them, how He orchestrated everything in their life, everything as a nation. And then we saw what they did to God and how they rejected everything that God did to Him. We saw in chapter 10, because of that rejection, and then God went to the Gentiles. And that's where we've been. And we saw that Romans chapter 10 is the greatest single chapter anywhere in the Bible that talks about how you and I get saved. And we talked about the great verses where it says, Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Last week we ended uh, another section in there, and I showed you uh, how God deals with the Gentiles. And I showed you a, a, a brief presentation of the gospel and the stars. How that there's three things that declare the glory of God on this world. One of them is the Bible. The other one is Jesus Christ, who is the visible appearance of the invisible God. And then the third one was the heavens that declare the glory of God. And you should have a better understanding now as we talk about that. And now today we're going to look at the last section in Romans chapter 10. And that's going to be verses 19 through 20. And we're going to see that uh, th this part of the Word of God is getting us ready to move into the next section. And uh, let's begin reading today. Let's, let's back up a little bit and pick it up in verse 17, uh, even though we're going to be focusing on verse 19 through 21. But let's follow what it says then. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But I say, have they not heard? 
Yes, verily, their sound went out to all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Now, that's where we focused last week. Now, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And we thank you, Father, for the Word of God that, Lord, if we would just believe it, if we could just obey it, if we could just do with it what you intended for it to do in our lives, our lives would be so much better. Uh, we would be so much farther along if we could just stay focused on this one concept, the Word of God, that makes and helps us make the decisions we have to make in life. And Father, I pray today that you'll give us what we need to look at this and to understand it. And the Father will put everything in the proper context that you might have the honor and glory from it all. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to draw your attention to verse 19 first uh, here, and, and it says this. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. Sometime, if you want to take, a, I think, one of the greatest uh, word studies you'll ever take in the Bible is the word jealousy. What he's saying here is this, and he's making some reference to the Old Testament. Sometime, uh, and you, I'll give you some of these, and you can, you can get them yourself. Sometimes, write these down. Numbers chapter 25, verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22. Psalm chapter 78, verse 58. And Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 42. Now, that's just, a, that's just a very small a number or an accounting of passages that basically show you the Old Testament how Israel provoked God to jealousy. How did Israel provoke God to jealousy? That's an excellent Thursday night question. Well, you don't have to wait Thursday night for me to answer it. Here's how they did. They did it by God giving them everything that He gave them, telling them that He wanted to be their God and He wanted them to be their people, His people. He told them that they were his nation, that he had great plans for them, and uh, he wanted to be the only one in their mind, in their heart, and in their soul. And of course, what did Israel do? Israel went after all the other gods. These verses that I just gave you, and you take a concordance and look up the word jealousy in the Old Testament, you will find time after time after time where the Bible says Israel provoked God to jealousy. They provoked him to jealousy by going after the other gods after he told them that thou shalt have no other gods before me. They provoked him to jealousy by worshiping graven images when he told them they should not make any graven image. He gave them their children for a heritage to make the nation of Israel the greatest nation on the fate of this planet. What did they do? They got involved in Baal worship that has to do with human sacrifice. They got involved with, with the fire of Molech and the God of Heman. And uh, in, the, in the concept of the fire of Molech, which you read in the Bible, Molech was the fire god. And the nation of Israel would actually take their children and offer them as a sacrifice to Molech. Molech was a gigantic brazen a god that had a hollow stomach with mechanical hands. 
And they stoked and built a fire inside Molech. And then they laid those babies in the hands of Molech. And as the babies screamed from the heat and the hot of those hands that were heated by the fire, they all praised Baal and cranked the handles and the arms went up and the baby went into the belly. That's what you find in your Bible when you find where it talks about passing through the fire of Molech. You'd go to Jerusalem today, you'd go down there in the Valley of Hinnon. The Valley of Hinnon is also called Gehenna. In Christ's time, it was a trash dump. We talked about this Thursday night. It was a trash dump that is likened to, a, to hell in the Bible. But in the Old Testament times, Gehenna, what is the modern day or in Jesus' time trash dump, was the place where they worshiped fire of Molech. And God put a curse on that place that through the rest of the Bible, it was a place of death, destruction, and burning. In fact, the Bible makes a reference to hell where it talks about the worm dying not, dieth not, like we talked about in Isaiah 66, which is a reference back to that place called uh, Gehenna. So when you see all of that and you understand that, that the nation of Israel provoked God to jealousy. Now what you have here is that God is turning the tables. God was a God to them and gave them everything and they rejected Him. So what He's saying here now is the fact that Israel provoked God to jealousy, so now God is going to turn the tables and God is going to provoke Israel to jealousy. And how did He do that? By forsaking the Jews and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. You know why Jews don't like us? I mean, a real Orthodox Jew won't give us the time of day. Oh, I know. You say, well, I went to the Holy Land and they were really nice. Sure they were. They were ripping you off every time you turned around. They were selling you pieces of the cross. They were selling you holy oil that, that they out of the alabaster box. They were selling you everything in the world over there and dumb, stupid Christians. They were taking you down to the Holy Sepulchre and showing you where Christ, uh, you know, the cave that Christ was in. And uh, they, show, they showed you the, the place where he was crucified. And all of that stuff has nothing to do with the real place he was crucified and oil he took on. They just rip you off. They hate Gentiles. They don't want anything to do with us. You know why? Because they're jealous. They may not understand jealousy. You know what? In a practical sense, most people that get jealous of other people, they don't understand why they're jealous. But jealousy is a terrible thing. And they provoke God to jealousy. And that's even a more terrible thing because God then provoked them to jealousy by taking the gospel and going to the Gentiles. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. He said, Have that I not Israel? No. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, that's us Gentiles, and by a foolish nation, that's all the Gentiles in a congregation of, of a nation, I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that shot me not, that's you and me, Gentiles. I was manifest unto them that asked not after me, that's you and me, that's you and me. Verse 21 is a reference to Isaiah chapter 65. Let's turn over there and read that one. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2. Because this sets up a great, great, great concept and a great principle that you and I need to understand this morning. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. I am sought of them that ask not for me, Gentiles. I am found of them that sought me not, Gentiles. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. That's you and me, the Gentiles. And then in verse 2, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, 
that sacrificed in garden, this is Israel now, and burneth incense upon the altars of brick. You want to notice the word brick there. Bricks in the Bible, like Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel. Bricks in the Bible always stand for a man-made religion. Whenever an altar was made in the Bible, whenever God made something in the Bible, it was made out of stone. You see, stone is God-made. Bricks are man-made. So when they made the Tower of Babel back there, the Bible tells you that they, made, they used brick for stone. You know why? Because the Tower of Babel is a picture of a man-made religion. Just one of those things you learn about coming through the Bible. And he says, uh, uh, which remain among the graves and lodge in the mountains, uh, monuments, uh, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things in their vessels, which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose and a fire that burneth all day. Behold, it is written, before me I will not keep silent, but I will recompense even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure the former work into their bosom. And you're talking about there of God is telling them that he went to the Gentiles. And he went to the Gentiles because the nation of Israel did all of these abominations. Oh, but look at verse 2. I have spread out my hands all day unto a rebellious people. That's what he's quoting up there in, in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 21. When you look at all of the things, and this is what most people can't see. And this is what most people get messed up in when it comes to the Bible and the nation of Israel. And this is why God takes three chapters to lay all this out for you, so you and I don't get messed up on it as part of the church. And boy, most of the churches are messed up on it today. And that is God's eternal love for Israel. God is angry with Israel. God is going to put Israel through the greatest time and the greatest uh, disaster this world has ever seen. But the Bible says that God's eternal love for Israel is the fact that God, after it's all said and done, is going to restore the nation of Israel to himself. Israel is likened to an unfaithful wife, but God wants her restored unto him. You know, it's things like this and these concepts that make up the fundamentals of the Bible. A lot of people, they, they know a lot of exciting things about the Bible. They know the book of Revelation, you know, and they spend time going through all of the deep things in the Bible. But when their own personal issues come into life, they, they can't function. You know why? Because they focused on all of the deep things, but they don't have the foundational things in the Bible. It's things like this that show you some of the basic foundational truths of the Bible once you grasp them as God is dealing with the nation of Israel in a concept of, of God restoring them. It's things like this that make the foundation that everything else in the Bible is built on. You talk about eternal security. You know, what an issue people have with that today. And yet the very fundamental issue of eternal security for you and for me lies in the fact that no matter what Israel did to God, no matter how he provoked God to jealousy, and no matter how God then went to the Gentiles and provoked Israel to jealousy, it was all to bring Israel back. You know, as a child of God, you may go through, and, I, and I've told you many, many times about the parallels between the nation of Israel and you and me. When Israel got out of fellowship and didn't do what's right, God took her to the woodshed. And when you and I don't do what's right with the Word of God, God takes us to the woodshed. Why? Because He wants to make us suffer? Because He wants to make us, uh, you know, send us to hell? No. In both cases, it's the same concept. He wants to restore us. 
the great character qualities of God. We talk about God's goodness. God's goodness toward Israel is, is unparalleled. We talk about God's ability to forgive the nation of Israel, regardless of what Israel has done. We talk about the word long-suffering, and that simply means that you, you suffer long with somebody or some situation. And of course, these are the great things that deal uh, with the nation of Israel and God dealing with them. And they form the foundation for the very things that you and I believe in as a New Testament Christian. Romans chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, basically brings us through a transition, going from chapter 10, closing it out, moving it into chapter 11, which starts the great process of God restoring the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11, without a doubt, ladies and gentlemen, is the greatest chapter in all of the Bible on the restoration of the nation of Israel as far as the church's understanding is it. You know, one of the things that all the, the, all the non-biblical churches and denominations all hold to, and there's, you know, when you study all the different religions, and I'm not talking about so much, you know, the, the Muslims in the, in the Far East religion, I'm talking about the American uh, denominations and American churches and the American cults. When you lay it all out and you put them side by side, they all have very many things that they all disagree. When you look at them from an outward thing, they all look different. But when you study them from a, from a focused standpoint, they all pretty much look the same. Every one of them that I know of teaches baptism for salvation. They'll run it back to Acts 2.38, Mark 6.16, 16, or over there to John chapter 3. They all deny the visible return of Christ and adopt an all-millennialism all position or a, a post-millennium position. But the key one is, and every one of them follow this, they all believe that in one way or the other that they have taken the place of the nation of Israel and they all believe that God is finished with the Jew. I cannot think of a worse mistake any single individual can make. I cannot think of any more blunderous, disastrous position a Christian or a church could hold to come to the point where you think God is done with Israel and then much more thinking you have replaced the nation of Israel. That is the height of arrogancy and also the height of stupidity when it comes to understanding the scriptures. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that they have replaced the nation of Israel. You ever go to the Roman Catholic Church Mass? You ever talk to a, uh, watch their religion? You know what they do? They bring in a bunch of Old Testament stuff. I mean, they have all the little rinky-dinky things that they had in the nation of Israel. The priest comes down waving this little thing with a censer in it, just like the Old Testament priest did. They have all of the, all of the vessels and all of the golden overlaid and stuff. They have an altar up there. That, that is, it's like the tabernacle. They have everything that you see except they're in the New Testament. You know why? Because they have brought all of the stuff out of the Old Testament into the New Testament and put it in their church. You know why? Because they believe that they have taken a place of the nation of Israel. That's where they're at. They believe that they have taken the place of the nation of Israel. It wasn't until Vatican II, just some 20 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it was, where one of the popes actually absolved the nation of Israel for killing Christ. That was big of them. And the truth of the matter is, the Jews didn't kill Christ. They were just the instruments by which the devil used and God used to bring about your salvation. You know what put him on that cross? Your sins and mine. I mean, you think somebody could figure that out. And for years and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church killed the Jews, persecuted the Jews, 
called them Christ killers because of the fact that they thought that they, God was finished with the nation of Israel. And of course, they're not finished with it. He's not finished the nation of Israel. The Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, or Anglican Church, whatever you want to call it, they all deny Israel's restoration. They don't believe in a literal return of Christ. They believe that, again, they're going to bring to make the world a better place. They're all in the social gospel business. And they talk about, you know, do unto others and give this and help this and do all of that, and all that is good. But they actually think that they're going to get the world to a place that is acceptable to God by their good deeds and their good works, and then Christ's going to come back. He's coming back, but not because they got the world the way it's supposed to be. What we call the American cults. We're calling the American cults because they... I don't know what you know about American Christianity, but once America was founded in, in with the Pilgrim Fathers, you'll find that over the next, uh, well, even up to where we're at today, you'll find that, I told you the other day, the gospel moves east to west. Well, you'll find across this country, moving east to west from the founding of the Pilgrim Fathers, uh, around 16-whatever up to the time we live in, you'll find what the Bible calls in, in church history, you can read about it all the time, seven great awakenings. Seven great awakenings or seven awakenings of the Holy Spirit of God. Revivals across this country. And they start on the East Coast and they move to the West Coast. We are seeing the, the last remnants of the great last seventh uh, awakening. It wasn't much of an awakening, but uh, we're seeing the last thing. Of people, you know, preachers get up and they talk about, well, I believe there can be one more great revival in America. Not if you know your Bible. America, there's going to be no revival in America. You can't have revival without the truth. And America gave rid of the truth over 100 years ago. Ain't no revival coming. No revival at all. But that's what happens. We don't know your Bible. You don't know history. Now, along with those seven great awakenings, remember I told you in the Bible basics class how that all history is God moving in a direction to do something and then the devil moves to, to, to cut it off. Well, seven great awakenings produced seven demonic American cults. And, um, you know, they're the, what we call the American cults. One of them is Jehovah Witnesses. The other one is, is Mormons. The other one is the Seventh-day Adventist. The other one is Unitarianism. Another one is Church of Christ. Another one is Christian Science. And uh, the last one is the, is the Charismatic Movement. Now, I'm going to put the Charismatic Movement over here for a moment because these six that I gave you are all are all for unsaved people. And they come up in American history. You couldn't find a Jehovah Witness in 1500 with a laser beam and a flashlight. Here's somebody walking around talking about, well, you know what, we did this and we did that and we believe this and we believe that and you're all wrong. Hey, you couldn't find a Jehovah Witness in 1100, 1200, 1300, 1400, 1500, 1600, 1700, 1800, about 1830. Bang! Here it is. Okay? No history. Psalm 127, except the Lord build a house, they what? Labor in vain that build it. You got no history, you got nothing. I've always thought about, if you're a Roman Catholic or you're a Methodist or you're Episcopalian, and I don't like to make jokes about anybody dying and going to hell, because I don't think it's a funny thing, but the truth of the matter is, in relationship to what we're talking about, if you're a Roman Catholic and you die and bust hell wide open, if you're a Episcopalian and you die and bust hell wide open, it's like going to hell in a Cadillac. 
I mean, look at it this way. You got all the pomp and circumstance. You got all the stuff, people, all this stuff, and beautiful churches and all this stuff. I mean, you die and go to hell, but it's like going to hell in a, in a Rolls Royce. I always thought with the fun, and I don't know what it's like in hell. I mean, I don't think there's any jokes in hell, but I always thought people that went to hell, you know, I mean, can you imagine going to hell as a Jehovah Witness? That'd be like going to hell in a Volkswagen with the engine stolen out of it. I mean, at least if you go to hell as a Catholic, you got some history behind you. I mean, what can you say? If you're a Catholic, I guess you could say, well, you know what? My church, I was the oldest church. It's been around forever. And it was this, this, this. And it had all this stuff. And I thought all of that was all beautiful. And he'd say, that's all true, but you're still going to hell. What do you say if you're a JW? Oops. Those are the American cults. You know what every one of them have in common? They all believe that they've taken the place of the nation of Israel. Why do you think the Jehovah Witness is talking about the 144,000 being them? You know why? Because they take the place of the nation of Israel. Why do you think the seven-day disadvantage meet on Saturday? Because they take the place of the nation of Israel. I mean, what do you think the morons do what they do when they talk about the, build a tower over here where Christ is going to come back and they built that big tower so he can find the landing zone? Let me tell you something. If your God needs a landing tower to find where he needs to hit ground zero, you better check your God out. And while you're at it, check your landing lights. I don't think your gear's up. <clears throat> then you have the charismatic group. Now, charismatic group may be a saved group, but they're as much of a cult as anybody else of these groups. And they're the last. The last great awakening in America started about 1950. And the charismatic movement was well on its way to taking the power out of that one, and certainly did. Now, the charis where, the, where, where all the other cults... <coughs> They'll run to Acts 2.38, and they'll take Acts 2.38, which says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They use that for salvation. See what a charismatic does. He goes to that verse, and because he's a Christian cult, he spiritualizes the passage. Where the other cults say, that's baptism for salvation, he says, after you're saved, that's baptism to get the Holy Spirit. See how he does it? Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. They spiritualize the passage and they make it to a church as a spiritual thing called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then they steal the sign gifts that were given to the nation of Israel and try to apply them into the church. Same system. Same system. Now in your Bible, ladies and gentlemen, there are seven things that a child of God is, not, is told not to be ignorant of. And we've taught them. They're on the website. You can get them back there. Seven things that a child of God is told not to be ignorant of, and you might know they are the exact seven things that God's people are ignorant of. One of them is, a Revel, is Romans chapter 11, where we're going to start next week, that deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, how could you miss that? I mean, if you didn't get it there, you know what? I told you before that there's seven things that you and I, as a child of God, we talked about stewardship, remember? There are seven things that you and I, as a child of God, are to be stewards over. Matthew chapter 20, one of them is the nation of Israel. How would you miss that? How would you miss that you and I as the church are to be stewards over not only the other six things, but a steward over the nation of Israel? You ever see in John chapter 19? I don't know what you read or I don't know what you study. Maybe you don't read, maybe you don't study anything. I don't know. But you ever see in John chapter 19 when Christ was hanging on the cross? Down there at his feet was his mother, Mary. You know who Mary's a type of in the Bible? She's a type of the nation of Israel. And right next to Mary was John. 
the, the Apostle John. You know who John's a type of? He's a type of the church. Remember to John chapter 19 when he's hanging on the cross, he looked down and saw his mother, a type of the nation of Israel, and John staying next to her as a type of the church. What did he say? He said, woman, behold thy son. And he gave his mother, Israel, for the watch care of John, type of the church. How do you miss those things? Unless you just got your whole day filled up in a Rubik's Cube or something. I don't know. I don't know. Ignorance of these seven things will land you in one of the above cults. The Old Testament is filled with references of God sending His people into the heathen lands and the nations, but then calling them back out and restoring them. I'm going to read you some of them. You don't have to turn to these. Maybe you just want to write them down. I don't think you'll be able to turn as fast as I can read. Isaiah 54, verse 5 through 8. No, I'm just kidding. Isaiah 54, 5. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, there it is, forsaken, Israel, and grieved in spirit, a wife of youth, God made him his wife way back there in the Old Testament, wherein thou wast refused, saith God. Now watch verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather. You look at that thing, for a small moment I have forsaken thee. That's 2,600 years. 2,600 years. 2,600 years is just a small moment with God. I told you a couple of Thursday nights ago about the young guy that had a conversation with God. And he says to him, God, he says, what's a million years like to you? And God says, well, a million years is just like a second. Kid said, wow. He says, God, what's a million dollars like to you? God said, well, a million dollars, just like a penny. Thought for a moment. Say, hey, God, can I have a penny? God looked back and said, yeah, just a second. <laughs> Time with God, 2,600 years, but a moment. Boy, I see those things. I see things like that, and I look at the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place during the tribulation period. It runs for seven years, but up there there is no time as we know it. And I think to my thing, that thing, that judgment seat of Christ, that judgment seat of Christ, if, if 2,600 years is just a moment of time, what must seven years be with God? Well, that judgment seat of Christ could take 10,000 years. How about the great white throne judgment? You see, we see those events and we learn them in Bible basic class and you hear me talk about them on Thursday night and we run around and we get the idea and the concepts in our head. Do you realize that the great white throne judgment, every man and woman that ever lived in the history of the world who dies without Christ is going to stand there before God one at a time? You realize that thing could take a hundred million years? It ain't like we got any place to go, but I mean, it, 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 God's timing is not like our time frame. He said in a moment of time, 2,600 years, have I forsaken thee? But with great mercies, here it comes, will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. 
Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 3. For I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nation. Now remember I told you in the Bible where the Bible's addressed to three groups of people. Some places it's written to the Jew, some places it's written to the church, and some places it's written to the Gentile, all right? Mark it down. Here's one, it's written to the Gentiles. He's not talking to the nation of Israel, and he's not talking to the church. He's talking to the nations. Those are Gentiles. That's one of those places. O ye nations, uh, hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it. The isles are far off, and say, He that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Hey, literally scores and scores and scores of places in the Old Testament that said God scattered them into the other Gentile nations, God turned His back on them, God was angry with them, but every one of them also says that someday God is going to restore them. That's Romans chapter 11. It shows that God's hand is stretched out to Israel and He's going to restore them. Hey, let me tell you something. The key character quality of God is forgiveness and restoration. I don't know what to tell you. The only reason you and I got saved is because God stretched out His hand and forgave us and then restored the fallen image. That's why it's called regeneration in the Bible. You once had it in Adam and lost it in Adam, so you got to get regenerated. You know what God had to do? He had to forgive you and restore you. You know what He's going to do with Israel? He's going to forgive them and He's going to restore you. Now, the process is different, but that's the greatest character quality that God has. You know what the greatest character quality of a church is? The restoration and forgiveness process. You know what the greatest, if the greatest character quality of God is forgiveness and restoration in our own lives, what ought to be our greatest character quality as a child of God? You see how that thing works? You see, unsaved people can't get it when it comes to Israel. And God's people can't get it when it comes to the brethren. But it lays down the fundamental concept of the doctrine of restoration. Now, allow me this morning, if I could, for just a moment, to set all this up for you in a historical and biblical format. As an introduction to Romans chapter 11 and closing out this transition coming through it of God restoring the nation of Israel. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I know you do, turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Let's go to that place next. Now, you've heard me talk about this passage before, and it's, it's certainly no secret to most of you. Matthew chapter 24 is probably one of the most <coughs> definitive chapters in all of the Bible. There's so much, and you know when I talk about a definitive chapter, 
A definitive chapter is a chapter or a verse or a passage or sometimes a word that defines the context. You want a definitive passage on the tribulation period that has all of the keys and the second coming of Christ? Matthew chapter 24. I don't know of another passage that is more, is more uh, potent than this one. And it's an incredible passage. And I want to read all the way down through verse 31 here. And I want you to follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, look on the person next to you. And if you're bigger than they are, just rip it out of their hands and say, go get your own. <laughs> Matthew 24, 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you not be troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes, and divers places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in the Judea fleet of the mountains, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither be on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days should, shall be shortened. That if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, inasmuch that, if it were possible, that shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if ye shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chamber, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You see that thing? East to west. East to west. Just like we talked about a couple Thursday nights ago. For whithersoever the carcass there's, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, second coming of Christ. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now, I'm telling you, this is one of the greatest passages anywhere in the Bible as a definitive passage. If you want to understand the tribulation and the second coming, 
you want to understand all of those things as far as prophecy, this is your chapter to define it. The Bible's filled uh, with those things. I've told you many, many times that when you read the Old Testament, I don't care where you're at, especially in the prophets. But if you read the Old Testament in a doctrinal sense, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament from a doctrinal sense now is going to be one of three things. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, and you know, when I was growing up and I was learning the Bible, to me, the doctrinal thing was always the hardest thing to see. I'd see, I'd go to Bible study, hear these guys talk about, well, that's the second coming of Christ, and that's the millennium. I'd say, how in the world do you get that out of there? I mean, I didn't get that. And to me, the doctrinal application was always the hardest for me to grasp. Some 35 years later, I look at it now, and it's the easiest thing for me to grasp. But you know why it is? Because I learned that learning those applications was based on a few simple rules that I didn't know at the time. One of the rules is this. When you're reading the Old Testament, especially the prophets, whatever you're reading in the Old Testament from a doctrinal, prophetic standpoint, whatever you're reading, whatever story you're going through, it will be a picture of one of three things. Not four, not five. It, it limits it. One of three things. It'll either be the tribulation period, it'll be the second coming of Christ, or it'll be the millennial reign of Christ. Now, you want to narrow it down from there? How do you find within those three which one it is? Keywords. Some of you, most of you, have read my book, How to Study the Bible, a book that sold well under a million copies. And you know that I have a whole section there devoted to keywords in the Bible. I do not know of another passage anywhere in the Scriptures that give you more keywords per, per line than this one. Very quickly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this because I want to be done by 4 o'clock today, uh, but let me show you some of them. Now, the first thing I want you to see is this. Verse 2. The disciples come out there, and, they, they, and Jesus says, they're, and they're looking at the temple. And he's saying, there's not going to be one stone left on this. Now, they got, that got their, God's got their curiosity up, and why shouldn't it? Now, he's talking about the final destruction during the tribulation period of the temple. If you were talking to a Catholic, you were talking to a Jehovah Witness or a Church of Christ, or you talk to one of those cults, you know what they tell you that is? They would tell you that's a destruction that Titus brought in in 70 A.D. when he destroyed the Jerusalem. And that would be true from a historical sense. Because when Titus came down in 70 A.D., he did destroy the temple. But Jesus isn't talking about Titus here. He's going way beyond Titus. But when you don't believe that God's going to restore the nation of Israel, then you don't go any farther. And that's why they stop where they're at. Because they, they think they're the Jews. Now, the second thing I want you to see is in verse 3. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. That ought to be your first key. You know why that's so important? Because at the second coming of Christ, He comes back to the Mount of Olives. That ought to be your first key. Well, anytime I find the Mount of Olives in the Bible, I stop and look at it. I'll, I look at that thing because that's where He comes back. Zechariah chapter 14 makes it very clear that when He comes back, He comes back on the Mount of Olives. And then the third thing I want you to see is they ask him two questions. The first question, and all both found in verse 3. The first question is, what's going to be a sign of thy coming? That's question number one. The second question is, and what's going to be the sign of the end of the world? Now, here's the first thing you've got to realize. There's two questions in this passage. Now, from this point on, he answers those two questions. And they are... They, 
the key to understanding it is the key words, and this is one of the most definitive passages anywhere found in the Word of God. From chapter 4, uh, verse 4 through 31, he deals with a question uh, on the issues of the end of the world. Let's look at that one. We already saw the fact that he's talking about the destruction of, of the temple. We already saw that he's on the Mount of Olives. They ask what the sign is going to be to the, uh, to the uh, uh, sign of his coming and to the end of the world. All right, here's the key to the end of the world. Look down here in verse 6. You see that little word down there? It says, but the end is not yet. Anytime you find the word end in your Bible, I don't care where it's at. Stop and look at it because that is always a reference to the end of the tribulation period. Verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my sake. That's Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse 5. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. You see, every charismatic in the world takes that and shows you you've got to keep on doing it or you'll lose your salvation. Stupid, dumb charismatic doesn't even know that we're dealing with a tribulation period. You know why? Because he has stolen the promise to the nation of Israel. He has forsaken the nation of Israel and thinks they've come to him so he can't get squat out of the passage. So he thinks it's talking about you and me. Anytime you find the phrase anywhere, any place in your Bible where somebody is told to endure or to endure to the end, the context is going to be the tribulation period. Now look at verse 14. This is where the dumb, stupid, charismatic couldn't find his way out of it. He was, he was blind as a bat backing in backwards. Look at verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. What's the gospel of the kingdom? I thought it was the glorious gospel of the grace of God. What's the gospel of the kingdom? Charismatic couldn't explain the five gospels in the Bible if his life depended on it. He doesn't know anything about the Bible. He thinks he's a Jew. He can raise the dead and heal the sick and give eyesight back to the blind, but he can't figure out the book God gave him. Than which they in the mountains in, in, in Judea. Judea. How's that Kansas City? How's that Topeka? How's that Indianapolis? How's that Denver? In Judea. Flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down and take the thing out. Look at verse 21. Context. For then shall be great tribulation. Look at verse 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning cometh unto the east and shineth to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Look at verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You know what all that is? All that's a question. All that is, an, all that is, the, all that is the answer to the question that he talked about when he said, uh, what is going to be the end of the world? He gave you everything that you needed to see in that passage. Everything you need to see in that passage to show you the Jew, the end of the world. The Jews in the tribulation period. And I hear people all the time, you know, well, you know, it talks about earthquakes in diverse places. Do you know since 1800, we've had a progressively steady increase of earthquakes every year? That proves the great passage. Well, maybe we have had more earthquakes every year. I don't know. I don't care. The passage isn't dealing with that. Those earthquakes in there are in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. That's what that passage is dealing with. The great tribulation period sets the context. The great tribulation is the second half of the tribulation period. Context. Context. Then we've got a second question. 
The second question deals with the shine of thy coming. And that'll be found in verses 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37. Two questions in this passage. And it leads us right into where we're at today with the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now look at verse 32 of Matthew chapter 24. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you see all these things, know it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then a great key. But as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if you don't already have that divided out in your Bible, you need to divide that out. You need to divide the last verses I just read from the first part of that chapter. You need to put a note in there that there's two questions in this chapter. One of them concerning the end of the world, and the other one concerning the sign of His coming. And when we come to chapter 24, verse 32, uh, we've got uh, an incredible passage here. I was going through putting all, putting all my notes together and, I, uh, and laying this out, and I came across an outline that I had written down many, many years ago. In fact, I remember preaching it vaguely, uh, maybe 25, back in the 80s. And I'm famous for hearing a guy's preach. And, uh, and maybe uh, and in one thing they'll say in their sermon will click something in my mind and I'll just take one little phrase that they said and I can, I just, I'll see a whole sermon on it. And I don't even remember who was preaching this. And certainly I don't think it was, it was um, on my own. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I remember in my notes in my wide margin I had this little outline concerning the nation of Israel. And I basically put this, and I give you this today as a a kind of uh, putting this all together for you. And I'm just simply down here that says, dealing with Israel, something that I should see. And then after that, I got the historical perspective. Something I should know. And then after that, I got a little thing that says, God's perspective. Something that you should watch. And after that, I got when they go back to the land. And what you have in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, is probably the greatest single thing that is the shine of when Christ is coming back. Now, I don't profess, nor do anybody else, to know uh, when the Lord's coming back. Paul talks about understanding the times and the seasons. But Matthew chapter 24 shows you the time element that you're dealing with. And of course, when we read this passage, we're talking about the budding of a fig tree. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8, you know that Israel is likened to that fig tree. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8 talks about the shooting out of the branches of the fig tree. You'll know in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 13, verse 6, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, in Mark chapter 11, verse 13. You'll know that Israel, when Christ dealt with Israel, remember the time he came out after he looked at the fig tree and he went over and there was no figs on it and he cursed that fig tree. That fig tree will always be a picture of the nation of Israel, historically. And that fig tree has been barren for almost 3,000 years, if you know your history. For 3,000 years, the nation of Israel was barren. 
She was cast aside. In a, in a little moment, I will forsake thee. 2,600 to 3,000 years, depending on your count, how you count it. But at least 2,600 years, she has been barren. You remember the story I read you in Matthew. I hope you marked it down in Matthew chapter 21, verse 34. How God called out the nation, that great parable, how God called out the nation of Israel. How the Bible says that he hedged it about, he planted all the things around, he, he gave her everything she wanted. And then the Bible says, when the time of the fruit drew near, remember that? He sent his servants to gather the fruit. Israel was put in the land. Israel was given everything that God wanted her to have for one purpose, to bear fruit. Oh, by the way, you and I were put on this planet for one purpose, to bear fruit. The parallels are incredible. Israel didn't bear fruit. And so when Christ comes out, he curses the fig tree. And yet the Bible says when they ask him, what shall be the sign of thy coming? He gives them the parable of the fig tree. And what he simply says is this. He says that when you see Israel putting forth those leaves and beginning the process of bearing fruit, you know it's time. A couple of Thursday nights ago, we talked about the, uh, uh, the Job chapter 41. And I told you that Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41 are the two greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament on the person of Satan. The two greatest chapters in the New Testament would be Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> and in Job chapter 41, I told you, the Bible says, talking about the devil, who can discover the face of his garment? Strange phrase. And I laid it out that night simply like this. Did you ever go to a dinner, theater, party place, you know, where you go and you have dinner and they have a theater? Or maybe in your high school place. You know, if you go to your kid's high school play, or maybe you're in one. You know, ever been to a play in general? You know how it works. <clears throat> Curtain comes up, act one. They'll play something else, play something out. Scene will come, curtain will come down, and then... While the curtain comes down, band plays a little bit, everybody scurries around and changes the scenery. Curtain comes back up again, now they're act two. Curtain comes down, they scurry around, change the background, curtain comes up, act three, different background. Well, in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, based on Job chapter 41, it says, who can discover the face of his garment? The devil has seven garment changes throughout the history of the Bible and man. You want to track the devil? Find out where he changes his garments. And remember now, the garments is what his, shows you his face. The clothes that he has on at that particular point shows you who he is. People make the Bible a lot more complicated than, than I can deal with it. To me, the Bible has never been that complicated. I look at the Bible like a seven-act play. And every time the curtain comes down, the devil changes the scenery. And when the curtain comes back up for Act 2, the scenery's all changed. But if you know your Bible and you understand the face of his garment, you can walk right through that seven-act play. And by the way, by the way, seven garment changes, seven acts to this play, we are at the end of Act 6 in case you don't know that. 
This play is almost over. And we ain't even had dinner yet. Seven garment chains. Seven garment changes. Somebody said, hey, Bob, what is, uh, what is the next sign? What, I'm, I'm excited about prophecy. Tell me, what is the next sign? What is the next sign that we got to look for? I got news for you. I'm not looking for a sign. I'm listening for a sound. There are no more signs. If you don't get anything else I say this morning when you leave here, understand this. The last sign that was given to this world was when the fig tree put forth its leaves. There is no more signs. We're getting ready to go into chapter 11. God wrote chapter 9 to show you how Israel screwed it up. Chapter 10, how they went to the Gentiles. And now we're transitioning back to chapter 11 because I'm not looking for a sign for His coming. I'm listening for the sound of that trumpet that's going to take me out of here. And I want to say to you on the authority of the Word of God today, there's some things you should see this morning. There's some things we should know this morning, and there's certainly some things we should watch this morning. That passage over there in Matthew chapter 24, the budding of the fig tree, is the nation of Israel becoming a nation again. Allow me just a moment to show you the hand of God down through the Bible and down through history. One of the things that I think made the Bible basics class so successful, so, so many of you learning your Bible, was they understand a, a way that we co co correlated history and the Bible. That we took all the events that you've heard about all of your life, and we put them in a logistical, understandable order that bolted them up to the events in history. It revolutionized so many of you. It gave you appreciation for things that you... I've never seen a group of people grasp the concepts of the Bible as fast as many of you did. And that's why I'm excited to read your thesis papers. I showed you. God's had a plan. And the Old Testament, that plan revolves around the nation of Israel, doesn't it? And when we study the Old Testament, oh, I know there's lots of names, lots of places, and lots of things that happen. But you know what you basically have? You have God formulating a nation of people. By the time you get to Exodus chapter 12, you have God calling out that nation of people. And by the time you get to David and Solomon in the, in the Kings and Chronicles, you have God establishing in that nation. And by the time you get to the end of your Old Testament, you see that nation in a tailspin crash and burn right into the ground. That's all the Old Testament is. Don't get caught up with the names, places, and dates. Oh, you better know them in your, in your paper. Don't get hung up on that and get caught up in all the stuff that goes on. Understand that the Old Testament is about God formulating Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everybody up to that point, God is putting the right people in the right place, doing the right thing, and the devil doing what he can do to stop it, but nothing stops God's plan. God formulates them. God calls them out. God establishes them, and then we watch them be a train wreck. <clears throat> we watch them implode. And what does God do? 
God in 606 B, 606 BC puts them in to the Gentile nations. We talked about those Gentile nations many times on Thursday night and even on Sunday morning. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then in the modern times, England, Russia, and then the good old U.S. of A. We see those in the book of Daniel so clearly how the progression, because it's called the times of the Gentile. But again, we see, we see Israel doing all the wrong things, going after the other gods, provoking God to jealousy. And so God sends Shennacherib, king of Assyria, down to the north side. And Babylon, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to the southern tribes. And he, he takes them into captivity for 70 years. And then what happens? Ezra and Nehemiah, a small remnant goes back. You know why that remnant goes back? It's the numbers given. There's something like 46,000 or 48,000. I forget the exact number. There must have been 3 million, 4 million, 5 million Jews. Just a small remnant goes back. You know why? Because God wanted to ensure. God's hand is always outstretched to the nation of Israel. And even though he has forsaken them for a short moment, he wants to make sure that Jews are back in that homeland when the Messiah comes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Oh, you've got to see it. You've got to see it. You've got to see it. If you want one of the greatest chapters, and I think it runs 72 or 74 verses, the greatest chapter on the end and the demise of the nation of Israel is Psalm 78. The end of the kingdom of heaven. And now the Gentile nations rule the world. And now the Jew has no homeland. Oh, a small remnant goes back in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they have no power. They're under the domination of Persia. Cyrus tells them what they can do. And they try to rebuild the temple. They try to do all of the things. Did you ever notice back there in that passage when they had the second dedication of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah that the old men wept? The old guys that had been around and knew the Bible and knew about Solomon how they wept and cried. Why would you weep and cry at the dedication of this temple? I'll tell you why. Because it was an epitome of a disaster. When Solomon dedicated the temple, there was a hundred thousand sacrifices of, of, of oxen and cattle and sheep. Two hundred thousand of this. Three hundred thousand of that. Four hundred thousand of this. The whole nation sacrificed to God and there was over a million sacrifices given to God. And Ezra and Nehemiah, it's two chickens and a duck. And those old men knew the glory of Israel was gone. They wept because of what they once saw and now what they had. Oh, they're back in the land. They're not a free people. You know Ezra and Nehemiah, you know Ahasuerus and all the things that go along with Salabat and all those guys that try to provoke them and get them kicked out. Once Assyria, once Persia goes off, Greece comes on. Once Greece comes on, Rome comes on. Once Rome comes on, that brings us up to the first coming of Christ. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw it or not. <clears throat> Maybe you've seen it before. <clears throat> Last Saturday night was one of my favorite movies, Ben-Hur. How many saw it? How many have seen it in the past? How many don't give a flip about seeing it? Good. 
Now, I know it's just a movie made by Hollywood. And I know that, uh, I think the thing I like about it, there's, there's no, back then when you made a movie like that, they had to have 30,000 extras. Today, you just computer generated. And to me, there's just something about computer generated that isn't real. Maybe it's the fact that it isn't real. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, you see things like the Ten Commandments. And you see things like Ben-Hur. And you see all those thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, incredible. But you ever notice that? It's built around the time of Christ. It's built around the fact that here's Judah Ben-Hur. And it's built around the fact, and it's, uh, it's built on Michelangelo's uh, painting uh, of God reaching out to man. If you saw in the beginning, the finger of God touching the finger of man. That's Michelangelo's painting in the, in the uh, cistern chapter up there. You know? The modern version of it was, uh, was uh, uh, E.T. And uh, they replaced God with an alien. And they had his alien finger touching the man of God. That's be, that'll be the last act of the play. We don't have time to get into that this morning. But boy, is it a good one. And it's all built around Rome. And Rome is in power. And the Jews are in the land. But they have nothing they're control over. The Romans tell them what to do. And when Christianity became a threat, the iron heel of Rome came down on them. They had nothing they could do. For 2,600 years, they were a nation without a country. They were a group of people that had nothing. By the time you get past Titus destroying them in 70 AD, the Turks take over. And they're kicked out of Jerusalem. Now the Muslims have it. And it's an absolute disaster. It's an absolute, it's an absolute terrible disaster. The Jews now are completely kicked out of the land. From 100 A.D. to 1900 A.D., they had no country, they had no land. And the fig tree was barren, ladies and gentlemen. No country, no land. They were the vagabonds of this planet. They were persecuted by every religion, every country. Spain exiled them. England banished them. France butchered them. Germany got rid of them. Long before Adolf Hickelgruber showed up. 2,600 years. 2,600 years. 1,800 years from Christ. And then lo and behold, in the 1880s, right around 1900, a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl, started a movement called the Zionist Movement. And when he started that Zionist Movement, people around the world began to recognize the plight of the Jews. You know what? I know that God of the Bible is the God of history, and I know that history always repeats itself. And that's why I know that this country is headed for an absolute disaster. Because they will not learn the lessons of history. We're in a war in Afghanistan. And I don't care if you send 40,000 troops. I don't care if you send 140,000 troops. I don't care if you send 40 million troops. You'll never win in Afghanistan. You know what the name of Afghanistan is down through history? The graveyard of the empires. There's never been a nation on the face of this planet that defeated the Afghans. The British couldn't do it. Russia couldn't do it. And will not do it. We don't learn those lessons. We, we, we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. 
And yet, in 1900, I see Theodore Herzl start the Zionist movement. 1900 A.D. Theodore Herzl is called the father of modern Israel. It's just by a wild stroke of coincidence in 1900 B.C., Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel, began to bring back the nation of Israel to the land God wanted them to have in 1900 B.C. Theodore Herschel did it in 1900 A.D. God was on the move. God was on the move. God's going to do something. And we're right in the middle of it. God's hand in gathering the nation of Israel from all the countries and all the nations that it had been scattered to was beginning to be fulfilled. In Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, all those passages we read, we see where God scattered them, but He brings them back. On top of that, another great world event happened. In 1917, Lord Allenby, the Turks, the, the Muslims, the last of the Ottoman Empire, and of course you know anything about the Ottoman Empire, they, they, they come into power after the end of the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire ran from to about 1,100, and the Ottoman Turks took over, and the Ottoman Empire ran all the way up. And yet, in 1900, I see Theodore Herzl start the Zionist movement. 1900 A.D. Theodore Herzl is called the father of modern Israel. It's just by a wild stroke of coincidence in 1900 B.C., Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel began to bring back the nation of Israel to the land God wanted them to have in 1900 B.C. Theodore Herschel did it in 1900 A.D. God was on the move. God was on the move. God's going to do something. And we're right in the middle of it. God's hand in gathering the nation of Israel from all the countries and all the nations that it had been scattered to was beginning to be fulfilled in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, all those passages we read, we see where God scattered them, but He brings them back. On top of that, another great world event happened. In 1917, Lord Allenby, the Turks, the, the Muslims, the last of the Ottoman Empire, and of course you know anything about the Ottoman Empire, they, they, they come into power after the end of the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantine Empire ran from to about 1,100, and the Ottoman Turks took over. And the Ottoman Empire ran all the way up to 1917. The Ottoman Turks got whipped. And they took the wrong side in World War I. They went with Germany, and that pretty much broke their back. But in 1917, Lord Allenby of the British Army, England's the world power now. England's got everything she's got and every, every territory she has because England stood on a King James 1611 authorized version. Now, it's about to change, but right now we're still in the green about to go into black and then into the red. But the bottom line is this. Lord Allenby goes in and kicks the Turks out. And now England, the most powerful nation on the face of this planet, owns Jerusalem. It was at that time, talk about the hand of God, during World War II that a guy by the name of Cham Wiesman, who was a Jew, developed some kind of smokeless gunpowder, believe it or not, from horse chestnuts. And it helped the British win World War I. And in 1917, in British Parliament, one of the great 
lords of that point by the name of Lord Belfar, a shaved man, stood up in Parliament and put forth a declaration called the Belfar Declaration. And the Belfar Declaration was a declaration put out by Lord Belfar to the British Commons and the British Parliament that now that they had Jerusalem because of what Weisman had done to help them and he read it out of a King James 1611 authorized version that that land belonged rightly to the Jew and that land should be given back to the nation of Israel. And it, they passed that. It went into the Parliament. It passed the Parliament and the Belfar Declaration came into being. But the Jews weren't ready. Through all the political wrangling that went on, God stalled that off because God's timing was not ready for that. The Jew wasn't ready for that. You see, the Jew had settled in Europe through the 1800s. And there's one thing about a Jew is he's got this survival mode in him. And he will survive when others starve to death. He will make money when you and I are in the depression line. After World War I, I don't know if you know how bad the economic depression got into Europe, particularly in Germany. By the 1920s, it took 100 million Reichsmarks to buy one loaf of bread. And it was an incredible thing. But the Jew had the money to buy up whole city blocks in Europe. Well, when they went to the concentration camps in 1940, you know what one of the biggest enterprising things they was, they did? They extracted the gold fillings out of the Jews' teeth after they killed them, sometime before they killed them. I've got pictures of bushel baskets full of gold teeth. Here's the Jew living in Europe in the 20s. The whole Europe's in a depression, 100 million Reichsmarks to buy a loaf of bread, and they got money to put gold in their teeth. You ever hear of the Warsaw Ghetto? Warsaw Ghetto is only the most famous one. You know what the Warsaw Ghetto was? Warsaw being in Poland? When the Germans wanted to do the final solution and wipe out the nation of Israel, they made it, the Jews made it pretty easy for them. Before that, you've had some problems, like one of the problems in Germany was the Night of the Long Knives. You know what that was? That's when they went on a rampage in Germany, and they, and they broke all the windows and burnt down all, of the, all the things that the Jews owned. It was called Night of the Long Knives. But when they wanted to finally wipe out the Jews, the plan was pretty easy because the Jews owned whole city blocks. And so what the Germans did is they brought, boarded off all of the Jewish section. And they called, it a, they called it a ghetto, not the same word that we identify with a ghetto today, but uh, it was, a, it was a, called the Warsaw Ghetto. In other words, the Jews could come out and come in, but they had to go out through a gate. And SS guards were all around the city, barricades, barbed wire, and they basically were a prisoner in that ghetto. Ever see Schindler's List? If you have not seen Schindler's List or your children have not seen Schindler's List, I suggest that you rent that movie and let them see it. Maybe not if they're real young. But if you want to get an understanding and appreciation of what was going on and what the Jews did and what God did to the Jews and what had to happen to the Jews for God to get them to go back, Schindler's List is absolutely what you have to see. Without a doubt. Absolutely what you have to see. We talk about the Holocaust. We talk about everything that took place. And you know, we live in a world today that denies the Holocaust. A number of years ago, I, I bought, a, I bought a, 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 um, an estate sale from a guy by the name, uh, his name was uh, Colonel Roy. And Colonel Roy, during World War II, 
was the common commander that liberated Dachau concentration camp. And not only did I get all of his stuff that he had, I think he stole everything in Dachau, but I, not only did I get a treasure trove of, 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 of uniforms and stuff, I got a treasure trove of documents and photographs. I had the original radio script that he did with Bill Bradley, who was Voice of America, in 1945 from Dachau concentration camp describing the events when he entered that camp. Bill Bradley's part was underlined in red and his was underlined in blue as he spoke back. I got probably a stack of four or five hundred photographs of the atrocities at Dachau. Dachau was just one of a thousand more concentration camps. There was Treblinka, there was Sorby, there was, uh, there was Auschwitz, they were, they were Mauthausen. They were everywhere in Poland and in Germany, mostly in Poland, because Poland was isolated from everything and you could hide it better there. And it was an incredible thing. And in there was a document that came down from Allied Supreme Commander uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And in that document was an order giving him, telling him that he was to document everything, photograph everything he saw. That he was, and that's why the stack of photographs, and they were probably just the ones that were left over. I've got movie reels of, of some of the most unbelievable stuff you've ever seen in your life. It'll make you sick when you see it. And you know why they documented all of that? You know why that Eisenhower had the forethought to document all that? Because Eisenhower said when he saw and toured the camps, when he saw the atrocities that the Nazis had done to the nation of Israel, he said, I want everything documented. I want everything photographed. I want everything laid out exactly the way that it is because there will come a day when somebody will say, this never happened. The prosecutor, the Nazi war criminals in Nuremberg, I forget his name now, after the Nuremberg trials, he lived for some 20, 30 years. And after the Nuremberg trials, you know, people started to talk about the fact that the Holocaust never happened. You know what he said? He said, I prosecuted every Nazi criminal. I prosecuted everybody from every concentration camp. I heard every excuse. I heard men say that they knew nothing about it. I heard men say that they were only following orders. I heard men say that they hated the Jews, like guys like uh, Adolf Schechler. I heard guys say that that was just following the orders and it was coming down a chain of command. Not one time in all of the prosecution defenses that I ever hear, it never happened. Oh, it happened. You heard me say it many, many times. World War I got the land ready for the Jew and World War II got the Jew ready for the land. He wouldn't go back after, he wouldn't go back after World War I. Business was good. He was making a killing in Europe in all of the countries in Europe. Now let me tell you, when Adolf Hitler gasped between six and eight million of them, they were ready to go back. God's hand was moving down through the process of time. You want to talk about the Holocaust? You want to see the Jews prophesied being burned in the ovens in Auschwitz and Treblinka, Sobior, Belsen, Bersen Belsen, Mauthausen? You want to see it? Read Ezekiel 22, 21, Ezekiel 23, 25, Jeremiah 16, 16, Isaiah 9, 9. God tells you right there that He's going to put them in the ovens and He's going to burn them like cordwood. <coughs> For a little moment I have forsaken thee. Brother, what a moment. What a moment. At the end of World War II, there's somewhere between 9 and 12 million Jews living on planet Earth. That's not even the population in New York City. 
They're wiped down to a remnant. And in 1948, you know what happens? On May the 14th, Israel becomes a nation. And the fig tree puts forth its leaves. And the prophecy is fulfilled. Of Matthew chapter 24, <coughs> of the prophecy, or the parable of the fig tree. And on May the 14th, 1948, she runs up the star of David, and she becomes officially a nation. On the 15th, the next day, she's attacked by the Arab League, seven nations. And just by a wild stroke, it's the same seven nations that attacked Joshua when he went into the land possess it, back in the book of Joshua. Ladies and gentlemen, as far as I'm concerned, based on what I know about the Bible, based on the book of Esther, we talked about that a couple of Thursday nights ago, as far as I'm concerned, based on my study of the Scriptures, as far as I'm concerned, in God's mind, the times that the Gentiles ended in 1918. And what you've seen from 1918 up to this point right now is the end of the Philadelphian church age, which really ended in 1900, and God dethroning the Gentiles and getting ready to set up the Jews. God always does it through a transition. And the reason why I tell you that is this. I don't know how much you know about the Bible. If you know anything about the Bible, you know the great discrepancy between Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, and Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. One place says that the nation of Israel is down in Egypt 430 years. The other says this place is 400 years. And the great Bible scholars who hate your Bible like to say, see, 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 there's a contradiction in your Bible. Somebody made a scribal error. They didn't make a scribal error. One place is, four says 400 is talking about the four generations. The other place is the 30 years added on going back to Abraham when God called him out. And if that's true and that holds true and God counts that beginning of Israel from when God called him out and Abraham is on the other end of Weasel on 1900, then the time of the Gentiles in God's mind was over in 19, 1900. Or certainly by 1918. You and I are living on borrowed time this morning, ladies and gentlemen. You and I, with all of our fun things that we like to do and all the things that we like to put in our lives that have nothing to do with God, bless your hearts, <clears throat> you're living in a situation that, uh, that we're right at the end. And at this point in May chapter 14, 19, uh, May 14, 1948, the last prophecy is fulfilled. The barren fig tree has now budded. It's put forth its leaves, Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. And its tender branch is now very evident. I don't know how to do this. There's a lot of things in the Bible I see, but I ain't got the smart to put them together. And I'm going to lay this out for you, but please don't run up to me and tell me you got the answer, because I know you don't. But that's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. I believe, I believe everything about this Bible. I believe this Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover, including the cover. I believe that everything in it is God designed by God for me to have. And I believe that everything is in God's mind is in this book because I'm too stupid to get it. It doesn't mean it ain't in here. And I believe without a doubt the date of the rapture and the time of the events and the second coming is right in this book. We just can't see it. Boy, I see things in there that, boy, I just get me tantalized, boy. Of, 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 uh, not that I want to figure it out. And you know why God won't figure it out? Won't give it to anybody, don't you? Remember, I remember back in 1988, there was a book put out that said 88 reasons why Christ is coming in 1988. And all the Christians in the world thought he was coming in 1988. Most of you don't even remember this. You're too young. And when the whole Christian world believed that everything was going to end in 1988, you know what they did? 
Now, you would think that they went out and they would win people to Christ. You know what they did? They all went up and ran up their credit cards and got whatever they want because they thought when Christ comes, they wouldn't have to pay for it. That's the body of Christ. That's the body of Christ. So he says, for such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man coming. He'll come when you don't think he's going to come. That's the way he's going to work it. That's the way he's going to work it. All right, my Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, that when the fig tree put forth its leaves, that's the 1948, the nation of Israel, after 2,600 years becoming a nation, then I go on, book a song of Solomon, chapter 2, and I find a picture of the rapture of the church. And at the rapture of the church, the Bible throws in the fig tree has now put forth green figs. See, in 48, it was just the leaves and the tender buds. But by the time of the rapture of the church, those, those leaves have turned into green figs. Once Israel goes through the tribulation period and goes through all of that, and in the millennium, those figs will become fully ripe and she'll bear the fruit God wanted her to bear. That's a key. I guarantee you right now, as we're standing here right now, with everything I believe and everything I know and everything I hold sacred and holy, I'm telling you right now, that fig tree has green figs on it. Somebody says, well, what do you think I ought to do in life? Don't make any long-range plans. And if I can give you a second bit of advice, don't get too far out from God. You can't get back in a heartbeat. Now go back to Matthew chapter 24. Look at this. Look at this. Look at verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. We know that's Israel. When his branch is yet tender and he putteth forth leaves. That's 1948. The budding of the fig tree. Know ye the summer is nigh. Now there's a great key for you. That great key is the four seasons. I'm not talking about the musical singing group. I'm talking about the ones in the Bible. The summer's nigh. The summer's nigh. Now look at this. Look at this. So likewise, when you see all these things, what things? The budding of the fourth of the pig tree. See that thing? Likewise, when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Now, I don't know what you've studied in the Bible. You want a good study in the Bible? Start with John chapter 10 and start the door where a porter stands and he opens that door and Christ comes down. And then he opens that door and Christ takes somebody up. Go to Revelation chapter 4. You got the church age, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 4, a door is open in heaven and somebody goes up. You never find the church again in the book of Revelation. You know why? That door is the rapture. That's why. When you see these things, when you see these things, the budding of the fig tree, know that it is near even at the door. I'm not looking for a sound sign. I'm listening for a sound. It's at the door. It's at the door. Let me ask you a question. You're home with your wife, and your wife, you're in the front room or in the kitchen, and your wife's in the, in the restroom or she's in the, in the uh, bathroom or in the, uh, that is the restroom. She's in the uh, bedroom or whatever doing something, and, and she says, Honey, there's somebody at the door. What do you do? I, I'm sorry. Is it, it must be a really hard question. <laughs> when there's somebody at the door, 
What do you do? You certainly move toward the door to see who's at the door. What do you and I ought to be doing? There's somebody at the door. Are we going toward the door? Or are we running away from the door? It's here, folks. It's here. And I, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I'm telling you. Then he says this in verse 34. And here's the little problem we have. Fairly, verily, that's truly, truly in your Bible. I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, there's four generations in your Bible that we know of. The first generation is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, and that's 100 years. The second generation is Psalms 90, and that's 70 years. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 is the third generation, that's 47 years. Then we have a generation back in Genesis chapter 3 with Noah, which runs 120 years. Now Israel has been a nation, that, that, that fig tree budded 61 years ago today. Not today, but I mean this year. So we're 61 years into this thing. And you've got to keep in mind, it doesn't say that that generation has to end. It says that that generation, you know what a generation is? I was born in 1950. That's my generation. What he's saying is that all the people who were born in 1950, when we're all dead, that's the end of that generation. I mean, when the last person dies that was born in 1950, that'll wipe out that generation. What he's saying is this. The generation that is alive, that sees the budding of the fig tree, that generation of 1948, will not die out to all these things be fulfilled. And what he's talking about is the restoration of the nation of Israel, not the rapture, the restoration of the nation of Israel. The rapture has to happen before the restoration takes place. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, For the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need to write unto you, the book of Revelation, and Paul also likens it like the coming of the Lord to a woman in travail, a woman in labor. A woman is going to have a child. And there's certainly any illustration this church that will be able to identify with that will be a woman having a child. And you know, ladies, if you ever had a child, when you go into the doctor and the doctor says, you're, you're, you, you're, you're, going, to be with, you're going to have a baby, you're pregnant, uh, and uh, he tries to figure out your due date. And he tried to figure that out on the base the last time you missed your period and how that thing works out. But you know as well as I do, most women never hit their due date. I mean, for every, I bet there probably isn't one out of a hundred on a national average. You did? Yeah, Congratulations. Witchcraft always helps when you get into those things. <laughs> Bottom line is, most women don't do that. And the truth of the matter is this. You know when that baby's coming, don't you? You get up there, boy, that morning, your whole body. And I'm a firm believer of listen to your body. When your body, when I get up in the morning, I don't feel good. My body says, go back to bed. I listen to my body. When I get up in the morning, my, it says me that a lot lately. I don't know what it is, you know. I, I, get, I, I, I get up in the morning and I got, you know, I'm really run down. I got a bad cold and all this. And I know I want to go to the gym. And my body says, 
need to take a break. Or you don't need to go put all that energy out. I'm trying to fight something inside you. Don't go give it out on some machine someplace. I, listen to my, I try to listen to my body. And a woman who's had a good child, she knows. She gets up that morning and, and maybe she's had contractions off and on or have a far start, but she knows this is not the time to go to Atlantic City. <laughs> she knows. Don't get, the doctor will say, you know what? No airplane trips, no bumpy rides, stay off the world's a fun roller coaster, put all of the things that are on their side, don't go. It's getting close. And I'm telling you, in 1948, the last prophecy was fulfilled. We're living in the greatest time in the history of the world. I guarantee you, if you don't get killed, you, some of you younger people in here, if you don't get killed in a car wreck or you don't die of some unnatural, some nat unnatural thing, you'll probably never see an undertaker. You'll probably never see an undertaker. The greatest chapter in the New Testament on God restoring the nation of Israel is Romans chapter 11. And we're living in a time that God is preparing the final elements. We're coming down with a curtain coming down on Acts 6, and Acts 7 is going to raise up. And Acts 7 is the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and the millennium. When we get into Romans chapter 11, God wanted us as the church to understand God is not finished with the nation of Israel. God is going to restore the nation of Israel. And you and I need to understand that we're part of that restoration process. That's why things are the way they are in Christianity. Christianity is the most goofiest thing in the world today. God's people are the goofiest people in the world today. The devil is doing everything he can in people's lives to have them miss what God is going to do. And most of God's people are. They're oblivious to it. They've got so many other things in their life, and they're missing this greatest event that God has put us here for. My advice from a message that I must have heard back in the 1980s, some 29 years ago, for you and for me today is there something that we should see, and that is God's perspective historically of Israel. There's something that we should know, and that is God is going to restore them. There's something we should watch. The fig tree is budded. Everything that's going on in Iran right now and Afghanistan with the nuclear bombs that they're going to get and Israel's not going to put up with it. I don't know if you heard the Prime Minister of Israel in his United Nations address when he stood up and he said, basically, we will take you out and it's coming. And you see that most of the UN would not even stay there and listen to him because the whole world is against the nation of Israel. My advice to you, ladies and gentlemen, keep short accounts with God and don't stray too far from home. I want to end with this illustration. I want you to listen to me. Don't put your Bible away. Don't put your pens away. Stay in freeze mode. When you get Schindler's List, and maybe you saw it, after I tell you this story, go see it again. Rent it. Oscar Schindler was a real man. Oscar Schindler was a German businessman who started out making a lot of money using the Jews as slave labor. But through the process of time, he saw the atrocities and he learned to love the Jewish people. And he turned from making money to losing everything he had to save a bunch of Jews, which to this day are called the Schindler Jews. 
There's not many of them left today. Oscar Schindler died a number of years ago, and he's buried over in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And Oscar Schindler wound up <coughs> spending every dime he had trying to save the Jews that he had from the concentration camps. He got a hold, and he wasn't a saved man now by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying he was a saved man. He was somebody who, I'm sure like in the tribulation period, people who are Gentiles that will help the Jew. He saw what was happening, and he had the wherewithal, and I believe God used him, but he wasn't a Christian in any stretch of the imagination. Probably lost and in hell today. At the end of the movie, I think, and I remember watching that movie, the movie was moving to me to see in the concentration camp, especially if you have children, little nine and eight or nine-year boys, when they started to put them on the, and you know, the, the children and the old folks, they went to the gas chamber. The ones that could work, they worked you to death. And I sat there, and I had two little granddaughters, and back then my own daughters were not uh, that old. And I remember in that one scene, when they were lining them up in Auschwitz, and those little guys, the moms were trying to hide their children, and those two little guys ran down and hid. And when you look down, the one little kid is slidden down into a, into a toilet, covered up to his mouth with all the excrement of, of the human in that thing. And those terrified little eyes looking up, somebody might find him. And I thought to myself, those things moved me. But I think the most moving thing of that whole movie was at the end of the movie when the war was over and Oscar Schindler realized not only had he saved the Jews but it hits him like a ton of bricks that he should have done more. He takes off the ring on his finger which was worth a lot of money and he says I could have bought ten more Jews with this. He took off the watch of his arm and he said, I could have bought 30 more with this. He took off his German golden party badge, uh, the German golden uh, Nazi party, and he said, I could have bought five with this. He looked around at every possession that he had spent money on, and he said, I could have sold that and saved more Jews. Now all the Jews were so thankful for what he did. And they told, no, you did so much. And they even wrote a letter that as he passed through the Americans that he would have a validation that he helped the Jews, that he wasn't a privateer. And, uh, but I saw that going around. And it, it's so moving. He walks around speaking to himself, looking at a ring. And he says, I could have bought more Jews with this. And he took off his watch and he said, I could have bought 30 more with this. And he walked around in the, in the reality the war is over. And now there's a, there's a, there's, the, the reality is setting in. And he now realizing that he could have done more even with all that he did. And I thought to myself, if there's any picture, ladies and gentlemen, of where you and I will be at the judgment seat of Christ with all that we have and the reality that instead of doing this, what you could have done with this for God. How many souls with this have paid for to hear the gospel? How many things would this have done to further what God wanted to do? And you see, we, we live in a world, and we're all human. We live in a world that we get so caught up in it. 
You know, it's like working in a flower factory. When you go home at night, you know what you got all over you? Flour. And when you live in this world and you above shoulders with it every day with the people who are lost and the people who don't care about the things of God, you tend to get that same kind of feeling and we lose sight of what God is doing. We're right there at the door. There's no more prophets to be fulfilled. God is turning His attention to the restoration of the nation of Israel. And we're living in the very time. We are 61 years past the last prophecy. We're not two years, three years. We're 61 years. And it doesn't have to go to the end of the generation. It's within that generation. It just says that that generation won't end. Any way you slice it, with what's going on in the Middle East and all around us and in our own world. We have to understand where we're at in relationship to the coming of the Lord. I believe it's the key to any ministry today in any church and any Christian life today. We don't have time to have attitude problems. We don't have time to have things in our lives that keep us from where God wants us to be. I'm not sure you ever had time when God's hand of chastisement, but certainly when the day and age that we're living in, if there's ever a time to keep your accounts short with God, it is today. Because we are right there. And we as a church and you as individuals in your own personal relationship with God, you cannot afford to wind up at the judgment seat of Christ like Oscar Schindler did at the end of World War II, lamenting over the things that you spent all your time on when you could have spent that time for what God wanted you to do, but we never understood the reality of where we're at in relationship to the coming of Christ. I'll have a lot of things to give an account for at the judgment seat of Christ. I know I'm far from perfect, and I make my share of mistakes, and I do as many dumb things as anybody else on this planet does, maybe more so. And I know that there'll be a lot of that. I don't expect anything at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't, I, I, I know you know, I, I, I know how that thing works and I know where that whole thing flows, boy. And I'm going to tell you something. There'll be a lot of things I'm going to have to give an account for. But I'll tell you one thing. I'll never stand the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for. And that is not ever standing up here and telling you where you were at in relationship to where that book is and his coming and what our responsibility was. I have a lot on my hands, but that won't be one of them. Because I'm telling you, folks, it's near even at the door, even at the door. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And, Lord, we love you. And we thank you, Father, for uh, the book of Romans. We thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us and, as a church. And thank you for these fine people that come out today to hear the Word of God being preached. And, Lord, I, I know that that we live in times where God's people don't want to hear the truth today. We're living in a time where God's people, they live in a fantasy world. They think that, uh, Lord, that it's all about them and what they want to do and, and all the good times they have. And, Lord, that's just the way the world is, the Christian world is today. But, Lord, help these people today. And these are good people, Lord. I, 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 they're not a bad one in the bunch. But, Lord, we all get so sidetracked with the things of this old world. We all get sidetracked. We all get the flower of this world all over us. And we need a good shower and a good washing to get our perspective back. And Lord, as we enter into chapter 11, this was just the introduction to the greatest chapter 
that deals with probably the greatest theme in the Bible, and that is God restoring the nation of Israel and setting himself up in the millennial reign of Christ at the second coming. Help us to understand that we're there. There's no time for bitter inner fighting among us. There's no time for, for bad attitudes or no time for this or for that. We're in a time of the last moments of the last seconds. If God's hourglass could be in this church this morning that we could see the sands of the, the grains of sand falling through that hourglass, Lord, it would be just the last few grains of sand before you come back. Help us, Father. Help us to stay focused. Help us to do what you've called us to do and help us to be with you in our relationship, all that God wants us to be. Help us to have those qualities that you have in our lives. And we'll thank you 